Good morning. And let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your truth, for your kingdom. We we especially ask for your spirit now to, to enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, give us discernment in a world that is increasingly becoming conflictual and confusing, that we can uh, keep our eyes fixed on you and uh, and follow where you lead and be lights in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing uh, Lesson 11 in the quarterly, uh, the uh, message of Hebrews. And the uh, title is, Jesus, Author and Perfecter of Our Faith. And the uh, memory verse is from Hebrews 12, 2, which reads, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a power-packed verse. Five major points we're going to unpack in this verse. First point, there's a design law described here, used here, invoked here. Which design law? It's the law of worship. By beholding, we become, fix your eyes on Christ. By beholding, we become changed. This is a law that we change neurobiologically and characterologically based on what we esteem, admire, worship, and spend our minds um, meditating upon. So we're to fix our minds and hearts and affections upon Jesus. And, uh, and that's, that's the first big point, a design law. Second big point, the joy set before him. What is the joy? How he was the salvation for his people. Salvation for his people. And what is joy in this context doing for him? Is it just a, a positive experience? Is it doing something? The joy. Transforming us. Encouraging through to the cross. Encouraging. Mo- would you say motivating? Giving him, for, for the joy set before him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. This is Isaiah 53 he's referencing. Why would it please the Lord to crush him? He knew the result to him. He knew the result. So he ple- it, ple- it would be like saying, it pleased a parent to donate a kidney to save their child. That's what he's saying. The, the, the action of what happened to Christ was necessary for the salvation of people. So he's pleased to do it in order to achieve the outcome, the joy set before him. So was Jesus, So what was Jesus achieving on the cross? What was he achieving there? Salvation? Was he achieving something to propitiate his dad? Overcoming sin. Overcoming sin, yes, overcoming sin. Sin. Conquering sin. Demonstrating who God really is. Demonstrating who God really is. What if the father would have come instead of the son? Would we have seen something different at the cross? No. No, they all three have the same... Father did come. Well, this is the, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Isaiah chapter 9, uh, for unto us a child is born, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. So in, in certain sense, that's true. That's true. Uh, this is out of uh, That I May Know Him, page 338. Had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, humbling himself, veiling his glory, that humanity might look upon him. The history we have in the life of Christ would not have been changed. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God. In hearing, in effect, it is the voice and movements of the Father. 
This is, this is Jesus. So yes, we've got the same thing. So he wasn't doing any of the cross to influence his dad. There was no payment. There was no appeasement. There was no pro- propitiating in the sense of uh, influencing in any way. It was Jesus carrying out the will of the Father at the cross. So Jesus understood. Jesus understood that sin destroys it breaks the bonds of love and trust and obstructs God's li- li- uh, living beings from experiencing God's presence in their life. That's what sin does. And so he understood that what he was doing was destroying the obstacle, taking away the infection of sin, reconnecting God with his creation. In other words, he was fulfilling the Father's will. Not my will, but Thy will be done. He was fulfilling the Father's will. What joy. Think about this now. As a son, this is a description that we have, that he is God the Son and this is God the Father. As a son, what joy to know his father was proud of him. Well done, son. Good job. You have revealed my character. You have perfected humanity. You have eradicated the death-causing principle. You have restored our creation to unity with us. Well done, son. Proud of you. You think that brought Christ joy? Pardon? Could the Holy Spirit have come? Certainly. If you're talking about what member of the Godhead, yeah, yeah, certainly. And then we see this, this idea that I'm suggesting here, Described in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, when he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of the cross, all the way even to death. And then what is God's response to his son? He exalts him to the highest place above all names. I'm so proud of you, son, for what you've done. So, saving us. And I also think there is joy thinking about fulfilling his father's purpose, what his father asked him to do, and doing it well. What kind of war was Jesus waging? And we're going to pick this thread up some more through our lesson today, but keep that in mind. How did Jesus fight his war? Is there any lesson for his people at the end of time in how we're going to wage war? So, author and perfecter. What does it mean to be author and perfecter or finisher of our faith? Beginning and the end. Let's start with the author first. The Greek for author can also be translated as leader, originator, founder, pioneer, the same Greek word. About creator, designer. Well, I don't think that's the same Greek word there, but it's a synonym to the meaning. So what does it mean that Jesus is the originator, founder, author, leader, pioneer, perfecter, and finisher of our faith? We wouldn't have faith without him. Why? Why? Because we wouldn't trust him like Adam and Eve didn't trust him. He, had, he went through a lot to show us who he really is so that we could get out from behind our trees and be willing and open for him to enter us and correct the, the defects. So, so let, let's take that and, and extend it through the whole totality of Scripture. Who is the member of the Godhead who created all things in heaven and earth were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Who is the one who created the member? Jesus. Jesus. Who is the one who is the rock through which Israel drank in Old Testament, according to Paul? 
So who's the member of the Godhead who came down through Old Testament times to talk with Moses and to interact with them in Eden? Jesus. Jesus. And who's the member who became incarnate? So the point being is, if we take Romans 1, that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made, so that men are without excuse, who's the member of the Godhead who made all those things? Jesus. So we, we draw evidence or faith or confidence from those. That's from Jesus. The, the history of God interacting in the Old Testament. Who are we, who, which God had, which member of the Godhead are we lear- are learning from? Jesus, again, the source. And then, of course, the life of Jesus in humanity. So all the evidences of God from any source that lead us to confidence or faith in God is originating in Jesus. Jesus. He is the originator, the founder of our faith. That's one way to look at it. What's another way? Well, I read it. I, I was thinking that the like if you practice faith, the Holy Spirit gives more faith. By, by practicing our faith, our faith increases the Holy Spirit. What do you mean by faith? Is faith meaning we believe a certain set of doctrines? No. We practice certain rituals or ceremonies. We have adhere to a certain creed. No. Is that what faith means? We're of the faith. We do this. It's because we know Jesus so well that we Trust. have faith in him. Trust in him. Trust in him. Okay, so faith is something more than believing a, a set of doctrines. Faith is operational in some way. It's functional in some way. Oh, we can have faith in something that's good. We can have faith in something that's bad. We can have it either way. That's exactly right. So you you mentioned a synonym that I like, trust. We can trust God. We can trust ungodly people. We can place our trust in lots of places, right? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We've talked about this many times. The, uh, the uh, word English word substance comes from the Greek hypostasis. First half hypo, like in hypoglycemia, hypotension means low or under. Stasis means standing. Translated into the Latin, substance, substance, sub, submarine, subterranean, subway, sub means under. Stance means standing. Translated in the English, faith is our understanding of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the word understanding has two meanings that apply to our faith. The first is comprehension, where you were suggesting, looking at the evidence God has given us that destroys the lies, we see his trustworthiness, we see his reliability, we see his creatorship, we see his love for us, we understand he is good, we have comprehension and realization, that's the first step in our faith relationship. And when we understand, and we also then understand our sin condition, we understand our terminal state, we understand that we can't fix it, and we understand all this that he wants to, and through Christ has provided it, then we enter into an understanding with God. We don't understand it all. We have an understanding with him. That's our faith. And what do we understand? We understand that if we surrender and trust him and open our hearts, he will fix what's broken in us, not us. We get a new heart and right spirit. Like a covenant, yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly what it is. And thus, this type of an understanding is a, in the Bible, referred to as a covenant. Like the covenant of marriage. This is what faith is. The covenant of marriage is not a legal thing like the states do with their codification of the rules. The covenant of marriage is two people that commit themselves to 
Be loyal to each other, to trust each other. That's what it is. And this is used as a metaphor for the covenant with God, the church and, 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 and the groom and the bride. And so our faith relationship is our covenant and understanding that we will be loyal, that when we trip, when we fall, when we make mistakes, when we get tricked and deceived, when we, when we sin, we faithfully run back to Jesus and say, I blew it. Just like a patient with their doctor who's struggling with some addiction or smoking habit and they were absent from, but they relapsed, they run back to their doctor to get back in the program. They're faithful in coming back to Jesus, celebrating the good and giving him the glory, humbly seeking him for the healing when they come and trusting him with the outcome. It's not up to us to heal our own hearts. It is up to us to go to Jesus and open our hearts and trust to him. That's our understanding with him. So Jesus is the author of our faith by providing all the evidence to win us to trust. He was tempted in all points just like we are without sin and as a human being developed a perfect sinless human character and thus finishes the faith by becoming the second Adam, the new head of humanity. And for all who trust him, sends the spirit to take what's his, reproduce it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He finishes the faith in us. In that understanding. All right, scorning the shame. What does it mean that he scorned the shame of the cross? What does shame cause people to do? Have you ever felt shame? Don't, don't tell any stories. Have you ever f- felt shame? And when you felt shame, what did it cause you to do? Hide. Hide. Self-protecting. Hide. That's exactly right. Sin causes both guilt and shame. And shame incites fear. Guilt incites fear too. Fear of rejection. Fear of humiliation. Fear of not being loved. Fear of being ridiculed. Fear of exposure. So we hide ourselves with our fig leaves. Because we have shame. And we do all types of psychological defenses to protect ourselves. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Projection. Denial. And then we learn how to wear our masks in public. Because we're afraid of being known. If people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. And so we teach a fraudulent heavenly sanctuary document, uh, doctrine that in heaven, the record of our sins, the historical record of the righteous is erased. And when we get to heaven in the new earth, no one will know the stuff the righteous did. It's erased from history and memory. So we won't know about David and Bathsheba when we get there. We can know it here, but not there. It's wiped out. And so that means when Solomon comes walking along, he won't recognize mom and dad. Because how? Because when Uriah's standing there, he goes, Hey, Mom. Uriah goes, I didn't know I left you a child. <laughs> oh, no. That's David's child. How did that happen? Can't know. Can't know that. This is fraudulent. This is not reality. We will be known as we are known. Because the shame has been despised and taken away. 
no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We recognize that the things that cause shame in our lives are symptoms of the condition with which we were born. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We didn't choose to become sinners. And that condition, without remedy, without the Spirit indwelling us, results in acts that will cause us, as we become enlightened and transformed by the Spirit, to feel guilt and shame. And we either avoid the guilt and shame by searing the conscience and destroying the faculties that are sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God so we can become an antisocial psychopath and not feel any guilt or shame. Or we experience, through God's grace, transformation of heart with new hearts and spirits. And we don't live in fear anymore because it's no longer I live, Christ lives in me. This is one of the healing aspects of what the church is supposed to do. That the 12-step programs do much better. At a 12-step program, somebody comes in and goes, Hey, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Welcome, Joe. Welcome, You are known and you are accepted. Now notice this idea of the 12 steps that the church does not do well. The 12 steps when they accept Joe or whoever comes in and says, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a cocaine addict or whatever it is. They don't accept the addiction. They don't say, hey, let's have a beer and celebrate your problems. They don't say that. They accept the person, and everyone recognizes the person struggling with a problem. The problem is not good, but the person is still good and needs to be freed from the problem. That's what the church is supposed to do for sinners. Hello, I'm Tim Jennings, and I'm a sinner. Thank you for welcoming me. Thank you. One person was able to to welcome me. (laughs) Okay? There are certain sins that people would think, okay, that's not a good person. Like a rapist? Yes, there are many sins. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe having an adulterous relationship with one of your bodyguards, wives, and then killing him. King David? He's not a good person. So you treat them like a good person? No, you treat them like a sick person. Not a bad person, a sick person. That needs healing. They're sick, just like at the 12 steps. The 12 steps doesn't treat somebody as a bad person. They treat them as a sick person, a person struggling with a sickness. And they need recovery. They need healing. And support. Do you think there'll be any rapists... People who committed rape in heaven. Yes. Do you think there'll be any murderers in heaven? Yes. Well, what about Moses? Mm-hmm. Moses is already there. Moses already there. There you go. See that? <laughs> hey, hey, if he's already there, then his sins have gone in, into judgment already and been erased, right? How can we actually know about that then? Wait, we can't know about his murder, can we? The murder he committed? It's not allowed. Evidently, if the angels are watching right now, that must be where they go, Jennings is talking to beep. They can't hear that. It's beeped out. No, but this is what is taught. There are people in our church that teach this idea that, uh, that, that sins are, no, despising the shame. That also uh, ignores and disregards the incredible, gracious God who saves us from giving whatever. 
And so by being aware of the deepness of the pit and where God has called the rapist, the murderer, the, the fill-in-the-blank from, that's the awesomeness of God to transform. And that's a reason to celebrate. So, yes, that's right. But the idea of the shame, the shame causes division. It causes us to hide. It causes, it causes us to come into fellowship, but we actually never allow ourselves to be truly known. We never really open ourselves up to our brothers and sisters in Christ that they can see into our hearts because if they did, they, would, we, they wouldn't like us because our shame causes us to feel so condemned and so awful if they knew that I had this problem or that problem. They wouldn't let me. And I will tell you, this is how, again, the 12 steps function better than the church because if somebody came to the church, just imagine... A Bible teacher, an elder, a deacon, a deaconess coming into church one weekend into their Sabbath school Bible study group and saying, hey, will you all pray for me this week? I've been, I've been struggling with my cocaine addiction. Are they keeping their role as an elder? No. How about if it's a pastor? Do you know, according to the, uh, the uh, data that I've seen, more than 50% of active pastors have a pornography addiction. More than 50%. And do you think they can overcome it hiding in their shame? No. And this is the problem with the legal penal approach to things. And so Jesus despises the shame. And, 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 and there are two types of shame and guilt. There's appropriate guilt and shame when we've actually done wrong, committed sin, and that convicts us and is to make us uncomfortable so that we will seek solution and reconciliation with God and have it taken away. That's appropriate guilt and shame because we've done wrong. But there's also inappropriate guilt and shame when people can feel guilt and shame when they've done no wrong. And that type of guilt and shame is always based on a lie of some kind. Believing a lie in your head that makes you feel guilty. So consider the guilt and shame of a woman who has been raped. I deal with many sexual assault victims. And it's very common that they actually feel shame. They're ashamed to tell people that they were raped. Do they have actually any shame? No. They don't. That's false shame. Believing that someone assaulting them somehow makes them shameful. It doesn't. Jesus despised the shame. Innocent, stripped naked, beaten publicly, crucified on a cross, which is supposed to mean he's rejected and, 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 and cursed by God. But Jesus despised that because he knew it was all a lie. He knew he was not shameful. He knew he was righteous. He knew that the shame, and you think about the woman who gets raped, where does the shame actually rest? On the rapist, not on her. Jesus knew that those who were crucifying him, rejecting him, they were in guilt and shame. It was theirs. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Back to that point, because what you said was, look, treat them like they're good first. I didn't say that. No, 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 no. I never said that. I said treat them like they're sick. No, you said that you clarified that, but before that you had you said something about good, like viewing people as good. I was like, well, how can you view people as good when you have somebody saying, well, I'm a rapist, or, or I have this problem, but then you clarified, okay, no, treat them like they're sick. But then shouldn't we view everybody as sick, ourselves as sick? And yes, 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 that is correct. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, not falling with these problems anymore, and I feel like I'm a better person. 
So my struggles are white lies, but your, your struggles are rape, so you're lesser than. And I think that's what happens in the churches. We start categorizing ourselves. So New convert versus, oh, I've been in the church my whole life. So you, if you think about it through the medical model, you'll have the exact same conclusions about how you understand where people are. Are there people that struggle with illness, that uh, admit their illness, and continue to do things to make it worse? Yes. I've got bad COPD from smoking. Doc, give me some medicine to help my lungs, lungs work so I can still smoke. It happens all the time. We see that different than the person who has lung disease because they worked at a plant that had a chemical leak and seared their lungs. Or the person who smoked and then gets converted and actually never wants to smoke again and they get over it. We don't see them all the same. They're all suffering, but we see them differently. And there's a reason, because it's not just about the illness, it's about the heart's attitude. Has the heart attitude been converted such that they are now connected with the Lord, struggling to overcome and heal, or is the heart attitude unconverted where they continue to justify the sickness? And so the confessing one to another in the church is part of the healing process to overcome the shame for the converted. And the confessing one to another is not to be done in a public way because there's too many immature people that can't handle the public confession of some, some things. But they are to find a mature Christian brother or sister and experience. You understand the healing that comes when a person confesses and lets themselves be known and they're still loved in spite of the ugliness in their history, and they're not rejected. Linda. I think one of the issues people have about revealing who they really are is not only the shame, but also the risk that people will use that against you, and that makes people less That's why I just said the mature. (laughs) Okay, yes. Good, good enough. I don't really think I use the word good, okay? I'll go back and listen to the tape, but but I don't think I... <laughs> whether, whether or not it was used, though, it's that acceptance of the, the worthiness to be here. Just by nature of, of God loves you as much as he loves me, and he sees us totally and completely for who we are, and he still calls us to him. Yeah. So it's like a doctor seeing a patient... And it, I, when I see my patients, I don't just see the fact they're sick. I see what they can be when they're well. I see through the sickness, and know if we do these treatments, that they're going to be this way. So, uh, And then the fifth big point of our members, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Does this mean that he is not our high priest ministering the heavenly sanctuary? That he's actually over here at the, in the throne room rather than in, in the holy place, in the most holy place since 1844? Some people use this as an argument. Des Ford, I think, may have used this as an argument. But that's not what it's saying at all. This is a figure of speech. This is, sim- this is not describing geographic location. It's describing position of authority or power. The right hand of God is literally his hand. Understand, in, in ancient times... The hand of the ruler it was, a, was, a, was a position, like you might call the prime minister of some, today. We might call the prime minister. Uh, the hand is the one who had the authority of the king to carry out all of the king's activities. Like Daniel. Daniel uh, as, a, as a prime minister. Yeah, he was, yeah. what, third in the kingdom? Or yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so, or like Joseph would be better. Joseph, yeah. Joseph could have been called that. He wasn't in that culture. But in many cultures, the hand. You're the king's hand. Because the right hand is the hand of power. Jesus is at the right hand. He has the power of heaven now to wield in fulfilling and completing the plan of salvation and eradicating the universe from sin. So this is what it's describing, that he now sits at the place of power. Yes? It reminds me of the little kid's song, We are his hands, we are his feet. There you go. And the heavenly sanctuary description is also not geographical. Jesus is not locked in some smoke-filled building in heaven. When you read about the heavenly sanctuary descriptions in, in, in Hebrews or other writings, this is a uh, metaphorical picture to describe function and activity. What is he doing? It's not where he's located physically. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Hebrews 10, 35-39, and it says... So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who, uh, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who believe and are saved. What does this text mean to you? Upon what is our confidence? Do not throw away your confidence. Upon what is our confidence in God based? His promises. His promises? His character. His character. Uh, read Friday's lesson, the second and third paragraph in Friday's lesson, which is a quotation from a book called Steps to Christ, page 105. And this is what it says. God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant, yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. It is impossible for finite minds to fully comprehend the character or work of the infinite one. I'll just pause. I'm going to make a comment about that. Fully comprehend. Does that mean it's impossible to comprehend the character and the works of God? No, we can comprehend his character of love and truth and self-sacrifice and the works of how he works. We just can't fully comprehend. Okay, So some will take that statement and they'll turn it. We can't really know. We just have blind faith. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. There's no understanding. No, that's not what she says. Okay, uh, It is impossible for finite minds to fully comprehend the character and works of the infinite one. To the keenest intellect, the most highly educated mind, that holy being must ever remain clothed in mystery. And then so forth. So what is our faith based upon? Evidence. Evidence, evidence that appeals to our reason. Sufficient evidence. And evidence is what? What, is, what, would, you, what would you define evidence as? Facts. Pardon? Facts. Facts? Law. Design laws. Okay, yes. Design law. Protocols upon which reality work. That's a good evidence. Experience experiences, evidences, these are things which confirm or refute. 
They're data, facts, evident that they're things that confirm or refute, give, and they give confidence in things. The three threads of evidence that God has provided for us, he's given us three threads. Nature. Science and nature, God's divine nature seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse, Romans one twenty. So nature and science, the reality that he's created, the created world. <laughs> scripture. All scripture's been g- given. God breathed for the purpose of tra- training, correcting, teaching, and rebuking in righteousness. Scripture. Experience. Experience. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience me. He's given us three threads of evidence that reveal that, that we are to examine and consider and harmonize. When we harmonize the three threads, and all three come to the same conclusion. Scripture teaches it. Science shows it. Our life experiences prove it. We can have confidence for standing on truth. When we split up the threads, as you know, we split the threads, we have problems. Science alone leads to godlessness. Experience alone leads to mysticism and the mystical religions. And Scripture alone, confusion. We have 35, 40,000 different Christian groups now teaching the Bible teaches this or that or the other thing. Because Scripture pulled away and, and, and unanchored from the created reality that our creator built, you can make it and say almost anything you want. So we look at that. We have evidences for the existence of God. Let's go over some of them very quickly. Evidences from Scripture. Then we're going to look at science and we're going to look at experience. Evidence for the existence of God from Scripture. Just real quick. Creation. Creation. The creation story. Okay, we have the creations or any other. Fulfilled prophecy is a good one. He knows the future, and those prophecies, they work out. Really good evidence that there's an intelligence uh, beyond our ability. Yeah, good one. I like that. The historical accuracy of Scripture. Yes. The design laws described within Scripture. The life of Jesus, in my view, is a very powerful testimony. All right. Science and nature. Where do we see God in science and nature? Everywhere. Everywhere that you have discernment. That's good. I like that. I like that. So some specific ones, the laws upon which reality built, the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of truth, the law of worship, law of exertion, laws of health, all these design laws and protocols that are constants and never change. Okay? Um, The reliability of his life and health-promoting laws that we see you like the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. lose it. This is the law. It's a law of every aspect of your being, whether it's neurological or physical or, or, or muscular, wherever. The complexity of life itself. Do you understand there's not one organism, living organism in the world, that can, that can be alive without multiple pieces having to come into existence simultaneously. In other words, one piece of the organism can't be built and then wait for other millions of years or even thousands of years or even a few days for the other pieces to be built and added to it. In order for it to have uh, life, multiple pieces had to be there simultaneously for it to actually function. But the evolutionary theory teaches that one piece came along, and then over millions of years, another piece came along and joined it, and then another piece came along and joined it. This is, this is it's ridiculous for any th- thinking person. How about second law of thermodynamics? Which is things tend towards disorder. Without intelligent input, 
things decay over time. They don't become more organized and structured over time. And you can test this. This is very testable. It's a law. It works. Uh, and I think this, this particular second law of thermodynamics is an evidence of Adam's sin. I think prior to Adam's sin, the earth was based in God's life-giving glory. And God's life-giving glory was constantly sustaining life and there was no decay. But when they sinned, his energy input from the intelligent creator was veiled and things began to decay. In sinning, you dying, you will die. And so we see the decay. Walk away from your home, leave it for 20 years, come back and see if it's in better condition than when you left it. It will decay. Okay? Our DNA decays. The, uh, the, the, the genetic scientist, it's without question, every generation you have at least a thousand new mutations that are damaging in your DNA that your parents didn't have. So you have a thousand more than your parents, two thousand more than your grandparents, three thousand more than your great-grandparents. Every generation, the DNA of the human species is decaying. We're not evolving, we're devolving. We're exactly right. And so th- this is science, but wait, we need to follow the science, don't we? And we've understood in the last two years that the term follow the science in our society today means follow the opinions of people who have degrees, don't actually follow the scientific evidence. If you actually follow the evidence and disagree with the people who are given their opinion, then you're called a science denier. It's true, and this is, but, but, so, so this idea uh, that's come in the last two years about people looking at evidence and disagreeing with the people in positions of authority, um, and, and if you don't believe the opinion, you're a science denier, that is not new. That has been happening for 50 years in our school systems on anybody who questions evolutionary theory. The evidence refutes it completely. I'll give you some more evidence. Life never comes from non-living materials or matter. Ask a scientist, hey, you you believe that life comes from non-living stuff. Uh, You're a scientist, which means things have to be testable and reproducible. Can you show me anywhere where you can show life coming from non-living matter? They can't do it. It's never been done. can't be done. We have a world that God created that every living organism comes from another living organism. I think it would take a lot of faith think that that did happen millions of years ago. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it, it is incredulous to any really observing, thinking, scientific mind. And this is what our world has done. It's conditioned people to actually ignore obvious evidences and accept opinions of people with degrees and who's, who can uh, talk authoritatively as if that is science. It is not. And then you mentioned DNA. DNA is coded information. It's not just molecules that maybe burst on the scene because of a primordial soup and electrical spark and suddenly we have a DNA molecule. Even if you have the molecules, they're like letters of the alphabet. The letters of the alphabet have to actually be arranged into words and then sentences and then chapters and, and then books in order for you actually to have the information to produce all the various uh, elements of any living organism. So even if you allow for the spontaneous generation of the molecule itself, no credible, honest scientist has any belief that information organizes itself without an intelligence. You cannot code a computer and write a computer code program randomly by forces of nature. And all living organisms have coded information in their DNA, and that coded information. And so, the 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 those that are attempting to be more honest with the data will say things like, "Yo, well, we really don't believe anymore that life started on Earth randomly on its own. We believe it was seeded here millions of years ago by aliens." 
And when you say, when they say that, you just say, well, welcome to Genesis 1. <laughs> An extraterrestrial, non, non-earth-based intelligence came and terraformed a planet and put life here. That's Genesis 1. You're a creationist. <laughs> they don't like it. And then experience, uh, your experience is the existence of God. You have your own life experiences, your own, uh, but the biggest one are the transformed hearts. The person who was the rapist or the murderer become a person who would die before they hurt somebody else. Their heart changes. That's evidence of God. That doesn't happen on human strength. I'm going to skip through the, uh, I'm going to get some other things I want to get to in the lesson, so I'm going to skip. And let you do the, uh, the three threads of evidence for the character of God and the trustworthiness of his word. Hebrews 10 also speaks about the faithful receiving the promise of God. What is the promise that the faithful are to receive? They receive the promise of God. Transformed heart. You mean it's not wealth, health, and a long life? That's not the promise? Honor your mother and father. Your days might be long on the earth that the Lord your God gives to me. He's never made that promise. So we're not promised long life? Hmm. How about people like Daniel, Job, Paul? Did they, uh, did they receive the promises? Daniel was taken as a captive. Job, of course, you know all of his losses. Paul, beaten multiple times, eventually beheaded. Well, it's not a promise of this earth. It's a promise of eternity, of a new, a new earth. She says it's not a promise for success in the world. It's a promise for eternal life. And get your mind around that. Really, really meditate on that this week, what's happening in the world. If you haven't read my blog that I put up Thursday, prepare, the king of the north is coming. Excellent. Read, read the blog. Because the d- temptation is going to be so, so subtle that even the very elect is the temptation that's setting up between the king of the north and king of the south to get the righteous, the beautiful land, the, the beautiful or the glorious land, the people who have the glory of God in their character, to choose one of those sides to seek justice through. Because they see so much injustice coming from the other side, we want to make it right by joining this side and using the exact same methods to, to punish the other side. This is, it's going to be so subtle. Yes, you had a comment somewhere? No, okay. What about this? For just in a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. Has there been a delay? Not God's time. The lessons suggest that the Lord will come in his appointed time. The Bible uses language like it happens in the fullness of time or at the appointed time. The Bible uses this language. But what does this language mean? Does it mean that God sets a time and he says, uh, Ali, Ali, in free, ready or not, here I come? Well, since God knows the end from the beginning, he knows when it is time for Christ's second coming. He's the only one that knows. Or, since uh, I love that, since he knows the end from the beginning, he looks down the corridors of time and he knows when the circumstances are going to be right for him to act and bring these things about. I would go so far as to say we have a week, a creation week, for that reason, this predictory of what our earth will go through 6,000 years of misery followed by 1,000 years of rest. God could have created everything in an instant. Why did it take a week? I think it's because he's predicting this is an example of what the world is going to go through. What about the idea in Second Peter 3, 8 through 13, with this idea of an appointed time? Appointed time. Let's leave this idea in. But do not forget one thing, dear friends, 
with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So the kind of idea of the week representing a thousand in the thousand years of rest or in the millennium, um, a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements with the, will be destroyed by fire. And the earth will, and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be holy and go- you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Speed it. That they will bring about the destructions of the heaven by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Before we get into the speeding of this coming, let me just mention this is talking about the second coming, not the end of the thousand years. It's the beginning of the thousand years. And so this fire is the fire of combustion in which the elements melt, very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is first death, put to sleep. All the wicked rise again. This is not the final end of sin and sinners. And this is not the fire described in Isaiah 33, 14, and 15. So that's a different fire. So some people confuse those. They confuse both first and second death, and they confuse this example with the end of the thousand years. But focus on the question of appointed times. What is the appointed time? How do you incorporate what Peter is saying? Can we hasten the day? Can we bring it quicker? This How? is a huge concept that years ago, I, for the first time I heard from my pastor, and I presented it to other pastors, and they were like, no, God, God has a date, he has a time. Whereas this pastor, it was like, if God has a bride that he's preparing, if the bride's not ready, why would he come? The bride has to be ready in order for God to come. And so how we, we can influence God either coming sooner or we can extend it by not being ready and not preaching the gospel. We have extended it. Yes, I think we absolutely have delayed it. I think the church, the Adventist church, is uh, as an organization has been integral in delaying the second coming of Christ when it rejected the 1888 understanding of what we're teaching here and embraced the penal legal view of an imperial authoritative God who is the source of inflicted pain and punishment. And thus, the actual gospel is still waiting to go to the world. The true three angels' message hasn't gone yet. We've taken the message through the lens of imperial, and we still teach the same Roman punishing God that comes out of Rome. And that's why uh, the gospel hasn't gone to the world yet. It's the gospel of the kingdom. He says, when the gospel of the kingdom goes to the world. What kingdom? The kingdom of Rome. No, not the kingdom of Rome. And that's what the imperial legal view is. It's the kingdom of Rome. No, my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If it were, my followers would fight. fight. We would go on the crusades. That's what we do. Well, hey, wait, the church did that. The creator would be outside of time. So how do you describe all this stuff? So the Creator is describing it for people in time. Yeah, right. Okay? So He's knowing how time is passing for us. Okay? But for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Time is... I actually think it alludes to a time dilation field. A, a time dilation field. Which is that time passes differently on earth than it does in heaven. That on earth it's been 6,000 years. In heaven, it's actually been about six 24-hour days since Adam sinned. This is what I think is happening. I really do. I think time passes differently here than it does there. And this is why we don't see the angels, because the angels are actually moving through time at a different rate than we are. 
And so we can't actually see them until they step into our time and slow down, or excuse me, speed up. Okay? And then we can see them when they interact with us. But it's just a theory. But, but, but I think it's true. But also, we are an example for the world, the universe is watching what's taking place here. First Corinthians 4 9, spectacled angels. Yeah. God knows the time. I think it's important that things go according to his plan for them to understand, the universe to understand what's going on. And then that is that transformed heart shining out to the world and showing what God is and showing So, this is why things are happening in the world the way they are. The ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, are actively out promoting the gospel. They're asleep. They're asleep. They're asleep. And so what wakes them up? Seeing things happen. A loud cry. A loud cry about what? The groom is coming. And what do you think triggers that loud cry? World events. World events. The Lord loosens and allows world events to happen to wake people up and recognize, hey, the end is coming. Prepare. The bridegroom is coming. Okay? I see this also in Revelation chapter 7, where the angel from the east comes to the four angels, telling the four holding back the winds of strife, hold, 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 until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And the servants of God, if you look in Scripture, repeatedly the prophets are the servants of God. Prophets are not simply like Daniel and John who prognosticated and predicted the future. Prophets primarily were more like Jonah, who had a message for the people of their day from God. They were his spokespersons. Jeremiah. And, he's, and Jeremiah. He's waiting for the people of God on earth today, represented by the 144,000, to be sealed, settled in their hearts, minds, and characters, that they cannot be shaken like Job was settled, into the uh, truth about who he, at, who he is, and then the four winds begin to loose, not fully loose, a little loose, to wake everybody up, the message of the of the of his of his messengers is given the thir- third angel's message, which is given repeated in Revelation 18. It's given again, and a great multitude in Revelation 7 respond to that and are saved. And he's waiting right now to for the for th- his messengers, his spokespersons, his servants to be settled into the truth, so that the winds can loosen and we can give the final message. He can come. I'm telling you, look around the world. Winds are loosening right now. Winds are loosening. There's no question. Yes. Also, with the Hebrews in Egypt, Ellen White says that part of the reason for the plagues was to make the Israelites want to leave. Even though they were in a bad situation there, the unknown is scarier. And they didn't want to, they were at home. So Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. To, to, and so, one of the, so the, the end time loosening, um, and, and I was talking to, to my wife about this this week. I just want you to imagine you were Lot. And two people, because they're in the form of humans, knock on your door. The Lord has sent us to take you out. Leave. You got 10 minutes. Pack your bag. We're leaving. Imagine today in your home, two people knock on your door. It's time to leave your house. Everything behind. All your stuff. Get your go bag. Would that be easy for you? No, but that's what happens. And, and you don't get in your car and drive to a hotel. You're, getting, you're, you're hiking it into the woods to a cave. Uh, I'm ready. Let's, let's roll. I can't wait. Can I go to this little city over here instead? <laughs> can I really go to the Motel Six, please? 
But that's kind of that's like what's lot. happened in Ukraine. They have to, they walk out and leave everything behind. So how can we pray that God helps these people through or whatever? Because it has to happen before the end. Yep. These things have to happen. Yep. And God sends his angels, and so that's why we have to be settled, that we can't be shaken out of it. All right, Monday's lesson. Uh, the, uh, what's the purpose of God telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? I'm going to go through this really quick because I have, a, I have a couple more points I want to get to. We only have a few minutes. So the universal and faithful person Abraham was? Primary purpose, primary purpose was to heal Abraham's character from sin. Primary purpose was to heal Abraham. What's the root element of sinfulness or the carnal nature that we are all born into? What's its root element? Fear and selfishness. That's right. Fear, which causes selfishness. Me first, the survival drive. Salvation is dying to fear and having love put in such that we are no longer selfish. We're selfless and we trust God with outcomes. This is what, what faithfulness is. Do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Revelation twelve eleven. This is the, this is the, the translated this, the end of time. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. This is the transforming salvation experience. Abraham also needed this experience. And we see Abraham's faith relation with God wasn't an instantaneous one moment in time and everything's changed. It was a journey that he trusted God and we see him, God working with him to remove the fear and selfishness. And so he starts his faith journey and leaving her. That was an act of faith to leave her. And then he, he has faith in fighting to recover Lot after Lot is taken captive, if you remember. Uh, he has faith in allowing Lot to choose which land he wanted, and he would trust God to provide him for him in the future. Uh, he trusted God that he would have a son and be a father of a great nation. But then Abraham struggled with doubts and fears and took Hagar to try to fulfill it in his own strength. And then he also struggled with selfishness when he lied about Sarah twice to protect himself. So the, 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 the carnal nature is still struggling within him. And so, well, Abraham trusts God. Abraham still struggles to apply that trust fully and to surrender every fear and selfish desire. So after God's miraculously allowed Sarah to become pregnant, and you understand it was the miracle was on Sarah, not on Abraham, even though it talks, Abraham talks about how old his body was, because later he had even more kids. Okay, all right. So there's a miracle on on Sarah uh, heals her infertility. She becomes uh, pregnant, gives birth to Isaac, and then after this miracle birth, the promise is fulfilled. He's got the son. God instructs Abraham to sacrifice the child, who was the fulfillment of the promise. And when Abraham got that instruction, what would he be tempted with? I think it was God talking to him. Doubt, fear. Uh, selfishness to disobey, and and this was the 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 final hurdle, if you will, for Abraham to fully surrender, surrender completely the thing that he loved more than himself. He loved Isaac more than himself, and so at that point, Abraham is finally sealed, man of God, freed, if you will. He's no longer uh, you know governed or or uh, tripping up on his own insecurities anymore. So, and there are other purposes, though, God allowed it too. That was the big one, Abraham's healing. Uh, he allowed it so that Abraham could fully, more fully know God. Abraham prayed to know God more fully. Now Abraham has some empathy for what God is going through in sacrificing his son. He, he has a closer understanding of what God is, is going through. Also, as an object lesson to the plan of salvation, it was allowed. Also, as an example of faithfulness for the generations, see the faithfulness of Abraham. All these things are true, but even one more. 
He allowed this demonstration in a culture in which human sacrifices were going on to prove that God will never accept a human sacrifice. Notice, God told him to do it, but God stopped him from doing it and will not accept it. This was not about human sacrifice. It's just the opposite for those who are evidence-based thinkers rather than declaration-based thinkers. Declaration-based thinkers, God said said to do it, but then evidence-based thinkers, but what actually happened? God wouldn't allow it. Okay? And so we also have that proof that God does not allow it. All right. Uh, First paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. I want to get two more big points in if we can. In Tuesday's lesson, talks about Moses. Talks about... uh, the, uh, about Moses' second major example of faith, about how um, two actions of defiance against the king and, and so forth, uh, his parents and then him later, and he refused to be identified with Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, the story of Hebrews, of the Hebrews in Egypt and Moses is one of those places in Scripture where we have a historical account of real people who did real stuff, and it is also an object lesson of the plan of salvation. Both are the true. And so Egypt represents the world of sin, Pharaoh represents Satan, who's the ruler of this world of sin. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. We are slaves in sin. Moses was born a slave in Egypt. We are born in sin and conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5. The king of Egypt claimed the lives of the Hebrew babies. Satan claims the lives of all who are born in sin. Moses' parents rejected the legal claims of the kings of Egypt. Those who know Jesus reject the legal claims of Satan and the lives of their children. Moses' parents put him in a basket on the water. Our parents dedicate us to God and put us in his care. Moses' sister watched over the basket. Families and church members watch over our growing children. God provided opportunity for Moses to be educated by his own mother in the things of God. God provides opportunity for the faithful to educate their children in the truth. God provided Moses educational opportunities in Egypt that would prepare him for later administrative work in running a nation. uh, God provides us with educational opportunities to learn of the ways of the world to prepare us with our biblical worldview to discern the difference and be more effective in carrying out his purposes. Moses had to choose at some point which kingdom he would identify with and align himself with, Egypt or Israel. We have to choose whose kingdom we will align with and whose methods, laws, and principles we'll practice. Moses rejected Egypt and became the deliverer of the people and led them through the Red Sea uh, on the journey to the Promised Land, which is a metaphor of baptism, the New Testament says. We are to reject the principles of this world, be immersed in the Holy Spirit, so we can enter the Promised Land. It's a great object lesson as well as history. And And we're just out of time. Let's go and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your watch care. And we thank you for all the truths and lessons you've given us in, in, in scripture and in science and our real life experiences. And we pray that you will uh, enlighten our mind, help us discern what's happening in the world, that we can live out your principles in contrast to what the world is doing so people can be drawn to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.